It is good to see everyone here today. Hey, before I jump into our, our new study and series, let me say this. I had a meeting this week with a representative from the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. Uh, that is our uh, missional, collaborative missional effort at Southern Baptist here in the state of Tennessee. And of more than 3,200 churches throughout this state, on north side, you are in the top 4% for missions giving. And they wanted me to be sure and share a word of thanks and encouragement to you. Uh, and I have done that. And now let me say a word uh, from myself as your pastor. Thank you so much for being a church who continues to, to give, uh, to be incredible stewards. And, and, and if you're new to Northside, just for your information, when you give here, uh, when you give a gift to our general budget, 10% of that, we then forward on to missions, meaning this, that it leaves this building and goes to expand God's kingdom, literally, not only through our state, but throughout our world. So thank you so much for your continued giving. May we always be a church who uh, is found to be faithful in all that God has given to us and great stewards in ushering the word of God, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond these walls and throughout our world. Well, today we launch a new five-week series, as you see behind me, entitled The Miners, right? And we're gonna, what we're going to do is spend the next five weeks studying five of the 12 minor prophets, and then that's going to lead us in then to our Christmas series. Can you believe we're that close to doing our Christmas series? But that's exactly what it's going to do. And I know when we think of the minor prophets, too often we kind of skip over them, right? We, we, we do. I mean, when's the last message you heard from a pulpit from a minor prophet? It's been a minute, huh? Uh, when's the last time in your devotional life you thought, hey, I know what I want to look at, <laughs> right? Let me dive into some Habakkuk, right? I mean, we just don't go there often, right? We, we just kind of glide past them. Uh, my goal, though, as pastor here at Northside is I, I hope that you allow me the tenure uh, that I can literally preach through every book of the Bible because every book is vital in us understanding the, 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 the true picture of all that God has for us in this world and for all of eternity. Beyond that, the truth is I'm given a 35-minute window. I take 40, but I'm given a 35-minute window each and every Sunday to open God's Word and, and, and to preach the, the message that He's laid on my heart. Well, there is no way if your only exposure to Scripture is, is just within this 35 to 40-minute window once a week. And so one of, the, um, one of my great callings is not only to pastor, but, but as a preacher to encourage you, to equip you, uh, and hopefully to challenge you to dive into God's Word for yourself. Walter, uh, as a matter of fact, um, this is, is the perfect time if you've not been a person who has, has been focused on uh, a certain uh, devotional guide or anything else. Uh, we're going to be in the book of... Uh, th th this week, uh, we're going to be in the book of Joel, and Joel is only three chapters long, right? So a great opportunity for you then uh, to dive in. And so following this message today throughout the week, dive into the book of Joel and, and just read through that for yourself. And, and hopefully what I'm going to share in my short time today covering all three chapters, the entire book, it really will just serve kind of as a primer then uh, to your study throughout this week. Walter Kaiser, who is a great uh, hermeneutical author, hermeneutic, fancy word for how we interpret or study the Bible, right? And he's one of the, the great authors of recent uh, generations. He said this, the church and the scripture stand or fall together. Either the church, and that's a church with a capital C, meaning the, the corporate church of Christ, either the church will be nourished and strengthened by the bold proclamation of our biblical texts, 
or her health will be severely impaired. What a a great statement that the, the church will survive. But God desires for the church to thrive. And for for us to thrive as a church and and as a body of believers, then we've got to dive into his word. We've got to not only read and hear and understand his word, but then take that word and live his word through our lives. Paul in 2 Timothy, a passage well known to most, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as he was passing along that mantle, he knew his life was about to pass. And here's young Timothy, this, this new pastor and preacher. And he says this to him in these two verses. Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in all righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. He, he says this, he says, Timothy, understand all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, some texts say it is breathed by God. All scripture and all scripture is profitable for all men. Why? So that they can be found complete. That is uh, who God called and created them to be so that they then can fulfill all the works that he has planned for them. And it's scripture that that undergirds that. And that, as a church, we have to understand, we have to to grasp hold of all scripture so that we can be all that God has called us to be. I was reading through uh, several of my notes. I have different uh, folders and binders, uh, some from seminary studies and others just from, from personal studies. And I came across this note, and it's far too profound to be from me, uh, but there also is no author cited, and I did a little research, and I don't know there is one. I think I just piecemealed some stuff from other people. But here's what my note says. The Bible, in its entirety, contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the joy of believers. Its doctrine is holy. Its history is true. Its teachings are binding, and its authority is absolute. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. Man, like I said, that's far too rich to come from me, right? I had to steal it from somebody, or at least pieces of it, but, but how true that is. And that is, that, that goes back to the very foundation of this church here at Northside, that we believe the Holy Scriptures, all the Scriptures, to be infallible and absolute. With that said then, we're going to jump into our study today and as, as we look through these minor prophets for the next five weeks. And I know when we think of the prophets, uh, often our mind immediately goes to the five major prophets, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we think of prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? We think, now those are the prophets, right? They're the, the real prophets. And then you got those other guys, right? The, the minor prophets. But, but what you have to understand about minor, minor does not mean lesser, it just means shorter, right? Their, their, their books are, are far more condensed. They're, they're shorter than the major prophets, right? But in fact, the, the minor prophets are full of, of major prophecies. You might even say this, that Joel is a minor prophet with a major league message. I like that. Do y'all like that? That's, I don't care who you are. That's good, right? Uh, but which is one of the reasons, too, in, in, in our um, uh, images and everything that we did, we didn't want to focus on, like, minor league sports or anything because that's not at all what it is. It's simply brevity. What we find in Joel, then, Joel is this uh, profound book of both the history and prophecy 
of the consequences of Israel's departure from God, but then also God's desire for their restoration to him. Now, a little background on Joel, the, the name Joel simply means the Lord or Jehovah is God, right? That's what the Hebrew meaning is for his name. It was also a very common name in Old Testament times. In fact, Joel, the prophet, is one of 12 Joels mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Very little then is known about him. In fact, in our opening text, and, and everything I shared today and will share this morning is available on our church app, or you can open your Bibles to the book of Joel, but it opens up in this way, Joel chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. And that's what we know about Joel. He's the son of Pethuel, right? Beyond that, all we have recorded then is the text given to us here. So we have to infer information about his life and when he lived and, and where he ministered, both from this book and a few times that he's mentioned in the rest of Scripture. And so from that, we, we know very little. We know this, Joel is the second of the minor prophets that are in your canon, in your Bible today. But actually, it is likely one of the earliest recorded of all the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. Joel likely prophesied during the time, or excuse me, following uh, Solomon's reign, but also prior to the exiles of the Jews. That's the Babylonian captivity that was in the 500s BC. So we know a little bit of a window there, meaning this, that likely then uh, he would have prophesied and served during uh, the time of Elisha and Elijah, likely even an understudy of both. So that would place him at the, at the time of Joash in the 800s BC, and, and that's what most scholars agree about his time of prophecy. But another thing to know about the, 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 the prophets that we look at, both major and minor, prophets were also poets. And what we have, and that's certainly the case here in Joel, is you have a poetry. Now, when we think of poetry, we think of rhyme, right? Roses are red, thoughts are that, that, that kind of thing, right? But Hebrew poetry was a little bit different, and it was based more on stanzas and plays on word and play on words. And that's exactly what this is. So the book of Joel is actually three poems that we refer to as three chapters today. Well, let's keep reading in our text then as he continues in verse two. Hear this, you elders, listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children to the next generation. What the devouring locusts have left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, here he, he comes out and in this great prophecy, and, and he opens up with this rhetorical question. He said, you ever seen anything like this? Now, again, that's a rhetorical question. I mean, he wasn't asking for the input. He, he was telling them, you haven't seen anything like this ever before. Think, think back in all your history. And what had taken place was the people of God had, had turned from God in this time and in this season. And so God then allowed them to suffer. And he did so by sending these swarms of locusts. But he did it with a purpose, and that purpose was that his people would then, in destitute, return back to him. And I love what he says here, too. Notice in verse 3, he says, tell your children about it. And tell your children to tell their children, and their children to tell, and so on through all the generations. And I love that because it's that great reminder. Parents, I think sometimes today... We want to put on an act before our kids. We, we want our kids to think, well, we walk on water. 
I never made a mistake like that, I'll tell you. Right? We didn't do anything wrong when we were growing up. Liars. We did. That's why we're so concerned for them, right? We don't want them to experience what, what we did. And he says, hey, tell your kids about this. Remind them of the time that the, the, the children of God, the Israelites, they had walked away from the Lord and remind them about what they missed out on in his blessings or remind them even of the punishment of God. Why? So then maybe they won't make those same mistakes. It's a huge mistake to just to, to, to never acknowledge any wrongdoing to your own children. Because they, then they grow up thinking either you're, you're not being honest with them about anything else in life or you totally don't get where they are right now. Be honest. He says, tell your children and let them tell theirs. Then he, he lays out the end this, this plague, if you will, what had taken place with these locusts. And notice there, there's four types of locusts. It says the, the devouring locusts, and then they were followed by the swarming locusts who were followed by the young locusts who were then followed by the destroying locusts. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst scholars. Some believe that these are kind of stages of the lifespan of a locust, right? Uh, you know how they, they, they get the little burrow in the, in the ground, the eggs lay there for, you know, however many years before they hatch. And then when they come out, you've got like the nymph stage and the wingless stage and then the flight stage and, and all through this. And so there's four different stages. Others feel like that was actually four separate uh, plagues, if you will, of these locusts or, or four different years of desolation. Now, we don't know for sure. I tend to, to, I tend to lean more into a single happening in, in the stages of the locusts. But regardless of where you land, these locusts were instruments of destruction. And it says, they ate everything. First group come, and, and, and it got the, uh, the, the blooms and the blossoms. The next one come, and man, it takes the leaves. The, the third one comes and ate the stalks, right? The fourth one, man, they came and ate the roots. Like that. Nothing was left. Right, just, just absolute destruction. I was reading that, I was thinking, it's kind of like when the kids come home from college, right? Like, the house is great. Like, what, what happened here, right? Or I remember, oh, coach, man. Hey, uh, when my oldest son, when he was playing football at Seagull High School, and for whatever reason, after practices, they felt like our house was the first, I guess it was the closest, that was the place to come, Right? And so I would get home, and typically they were already gone like these locusts. They just devour everything and then on to the next one, right? But I knew they were there. First of all, when you open the door, I, I could smell they were there. You know, there's no worse smell than a, than a football locker room. I, I'm telling you what, that is just two kinds of gross, right? And so you open and you can just smell them. Like, oh, guys, I hope they didn't sit on the front, you know? Uh, and then you make your way to the kitchen, and it's just like shrapnel. Right? Now, you'll get a bag of chips, and you'll take out some chips and fold it back and put it in the... They just... Like, there are teeth marks in the packaging. You know what I mean? Like, just everything was gone, right? And maybe you can relate to... Well, well, that's what this was, but in spades, right? Like, I mean, so much more. They literally ate everything. In fact, these desert locusts that are referred to here in the Middle East, it's said that they can actually, and actually do, eat their body weight every day of their life for their entire lifespan. Every day they eat their own body weight. And a typical uh, a swarm in the Middle East is said to consume 423 million pounds of vegetation. Man, that, that's an eating machine, ain't it? It just wipes it out. And by the way, this has been recorded several times, even in recent history, you, you can go online and do the research for yourself. It, it still happens today. And as I was thinking about that, I, 
I couldn't help but be reminded. Y'all remember the cicadas back here? Uh, May of 90, was it 98, I think, when the cicadas broke out? The, I don't know, 100-year cicada, whatever that thing was. And it's a little bit different because they showed up. You know, they had been in the ground forever, right? And then all of a sudden, they came and they're just everywhere, right? But, but they were kind of localized. Wherever they hatched, they would just find the closest tree or whatever, and they would just cover that thing. You remember that? Like, just cover. But they didn't do a lot of damage, did they? Like they, they didn't eat just a whole lot. If anything, they were just a nuisance more than anything else. You know, they, oh, they make that awful, you know, just that horrible sound, right? Uh, and what you knew is just be quiet, don't disturb them, right? And if you were walking down the street or, you know, walking outside and you see a, a tree covered them, you had some buddies behind you, as you go by, you'd hit the tree, right? And those cicadas would come alive and they'd cover your friends. But that was about the extent of it, right? That was a cicada that they didn't do much. And so sometimes like when we read Scripture, if we were here in Murfreesboro in 98, we, we think, okay, well, that was the locust. That's not at all. Th these locusts were, if you could imagine, just giant, enormous grasshoppers, right? And, and they're, they're located there in the Middle East and throughout all of Africa. But they're completely different from a cicada. In fact, it said they, they have up to a four-inch wingspan. That's a big bug, ain't it? Four-inch wingspan. Can you imagine that thing? And because of that, it said they can climb as high as 5,000 feet and cover 60 miles in a day. Every day, eating their body weight as they make these incredible journeys. And that's what they do. They literally just devour everything inside. I have a picture. Uh, this is an actual picture of uh, in the Middle East, of that exact same thing taking place. Look at that. Can you imagine? Like, just, that, that's what they do. They, they just swarm together and they devastate everything in their path. Well, that's what the children of God had experienced because they had walked away from the promises of God. He continues on in verse 15 of chapter 1 then. God speaking through Joel says this, Woe because of that day, because of that day of the locust of, of destruction. For the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty himself. Now, in verse 15, what we have here, we, we find what is really the, the major theme of the book of Joel. In fact, you can underline that, the day of the Lord. You're going to find that same statement, the day of the Lord, repeated throughout all three chapters of this entire book. And what you need to understand, the locusts, they were both historical in actual, this that had actually taken place, what you saw there had happened there, had, had eaten all their crops, everything they had, but it was also metaphorical. M meaning, Joel, as you read through chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're going to see where he used it metaphorically to talk about the invading future armies that would come against the children of God. And so in chapter 1, then, we find the, the past day of the Lord, but that moves us then into chapter 2, where he begins to talk about the future day of the Lord. Look with me in chapter 2, the first two verses. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm oh my holy, on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a, a great and strong people appears such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. He reminds them, he says, now because of what you've experienced and because of what I'm saying is coming, the, the, the future day of the Lord as well. He says, sound the alarm. 
Let everybody know, what, what is the alarm? Hey, this is going to happen, so what should that do? It should draw us back to God. Be alarmed, church, be, be alarmed in your sin to what? To draw back to Him. As bad as the locusts were in the past, He says here, hey, listen, there's a far greater judgment coming. Uh, there's some locusts coming that are going to be in the shape of army soldiers, and they're going to be far more devastating. And he says, herald this warning to, to every generation, tell everyone. And what you need to understand, listen, this is not just true for Israel. Oh, it is a, a truth for Israel. It's true for us today, too. And, and what we see played out on the world stage right now is, is the world nearly turns against this nation. Take heart, church, and realize, hey, that can happen here, too. They turned away from the promises of God and have been in, in, in a state of rebellion ever since. Don't think that can't happen in America too. As we walk away from the God, as we begin to challenge the truths of Scripture, don't think that what we're seeing overseas can't happen right here at home. It can. And so we've got to sound the alarm as well. Picking up in verse 12, he continues, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Notice what he says. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. He says this, even now, with all this warning, with all this devastation, he says, even now, turn to me. Turn to me. And he goes on, return to the Lord your God. See, God's punishment that we see in Scripture, and even the punishment that sometimes we feel today when we turn against God, his punishment is always with the intention of repentance. Anytime we see that played out in Scripture, it's so that God's people will return to Him. See, if they would repent, God would relent. And she so says, I'm going to place this on you, but I'm, not, I'm placing this on you not because I hate you, not because I want to hurt you, but because I love you and because I want you to return back to me. So, so He allows it. In the days of the locusts, the you have to understand that the people were left with nothing. Man, I, I, it ate everything. That, that there was no grapes to make wine, to offer a wine, a juice offering. Uh, there was no grain left to offer a grain. There, there was nothing they could give to God. And so they felt helpless. They, they felt desperate. Not, not only had they lost everything, but even if they wanted to return to God, in their mind, we can't offer a sacrifice. And God reminded them, I want your heart. Do you see that there? He said, I may choose to give you back all this wine and grain and, and maybe even uh, a twofold. But what I really want is your heart. I couldn't help but be reminded of David who, who poured out his heart in, in, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He said this, you do not want to sacrifice or I would give it. See, David had access to everything, man. He, he was wealthy. He was king. He had all this. He said, I can give that stuff. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O oh God. 
He said, you know what God loves more than cutting a check and putting an offering plate? Boy, you don't hear Baptist preachers say that very often, do you? More, more than any kind of offering like that. More than going and serving in the nursery, but boy, we need you. Oh, we need you back there. But you know what he desires even more than any of that? A broken heart. A, a broken spirit who, who comes back to him and says, God, I've messed up. God, I made a mistake. God, I've walked away from you. But I know who you are, God, and I know you love me despite, and I believe in the promises you have. That's an offering to God. Not pulling out your wallet, though that is too, but giving to him your heart. That's first and foremost. He continues on in verse 25 of chapter 2. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate, the young locusts, the destroying locusts, and even the devouring locusts, my great army that I sent against you. I pulled that verse out of all these verses for, for this reason. It was desolate there. They had taken everything. See, you got to remember grain and, and, and fruit and wine. That was everything to this people. They were farmers. They, they were herdsmen. If they couldn't feed their livestock, their livestock died. If they didn't have grain, they couldn't make bread. They, everything they had, that was, their, that was their income. That was their sustenance. That, that was everything. And God said, I, I'm going to take it away from you for a time. He says, but understand this. I'll repay those years. I've got underlined in my notes years right there. I think it's a great one for you to underline too. Because here's the thing. Those crops, they don't just happen overnight. Man, when they came to, 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 uh, in desolate areas, man, it was like desert out there. They had to dig wells. They had to uh, put them in the right place. They, they had to, to pray for God's bounty and blessing. They had to prepare the land. They had to get the seed. It would take years and years before a family could actually have good crops. And in an instant, the locust took it all away. But notice what God says. I can give you back years. God can restore lost years. Consider Job who spent his lifetime uh, amassing a fortune and a wealth and, and all this family, and yet it was all taken from him. But immediately we hear in Scripture, but then when he gave his heart to God, because he, he never walked away from the Lord, God gave him what, church? Two times as much back. Because only God can. Can I tell you something? God can restore years. Those years that you were living for the world, those years that, that you walked away from God, those, those years that you didn't have a relationship with your family, the, the, those years where you uh, even, even blamed God for the things of your life, those, those years that you didn't go to church, those, those years that you didn't do anything good for the kingdom, only God can restore those. Only God can. Hey, can I tell you something? For those who have lost loved ones, those years that, that were taken, that, that you can't experience in the future, those years that you had looked forward to together, those, those years that you had planned for, those years that you had envisioned, even in eternity, God can restore them too. He's the God that can restore the years that even this world takes away. But only God can. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 28 and closing out chapter 2. He says this, beginning in 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. 
I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Verse 32, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, can I ask you something? Does that passage sound familiar to you? If y'all are with us in our Acts study, Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter was given the voice of God at the great day of Pentecost, those are the words that he repeated. Now, some would say, well, then that was the fulfillment at Pentecost when the tongues of fire came down and they, they spoke in every dialect and, and sharing the gospel. That was its fulfillment. No, that was just a sample of what was to come. But the promise that even today and until Jesus returns, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone. This was a Jew prophesying to Jews that it wasn't just for them, but everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. Well, that then leads us into not the future judgment, but the, the final day of the Lord in chapter 3. Look with me at the first two verses there. Yes, in those days, this is again in chapter 3. Yes, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them. There, because of my people, my inheritance, Israel. He says this, hey, listen, when this takes place, the nations will notice God's love for his people. Their eyes will be able to say, look how he's blessed them. Look, look what he's done for them. Hey, historically, that was true with every exile. It was true with the Egyptian captivity, was it not? My goodness, he parted the seas. He, he got them over to the promised land, right? It was true with the Assyrian captivity. It was even true with the Babylonian captivity that would follow this. And eschatologically speaking, the day will come when God returns and the world, every nation, every person, every eye will see the love he has for his people. We see today where, you know, we're so quick to forget things. I mean, look what's played out today. It's been 80 years since the Jewish Holocaust. And it's, though it's forgotten, it never happened. Even, America, even here in America since, since 9-11, how, how quickly we forget things. God will never forget. He will never forget the atrocities against his people, his chosen ones. See, God has a special relationship with the people of Israel from the very first covenant that he gave to Abram. And the evils committed against Israel, past, present, and even in the future, will all be held accountable. That's what God's Word says. But remember this too, the wrath of God is always an expression of the love of God. So how could God hate a people that, that says, why doesn't he love? Because of his love for them. That's the way it is in parenting, right? We're not wrathful people, but mess with our children. You'll get it, right? Uh, meanest people in our church are mama bears. Uh, hey, uh-uh, deacons walk away from those, right? Uh, they get messing with their kids. We're, we're out, right? Uh, why? But, man, you get a whole new level of wrath because of the level of love. Well, that's true with God, too. 
When he allows punishment, when, when he uh, allows wrath, it's because of the depth of his love for his children. And while today, even now, the majority of Israel has, has not received Jesus as Lord or Messiah, they've not. And yet when he returns, we're told, and even Jesus said in Matthew 24, 31, that when he returns, their eyes will be open. Finally and ultimately, they, they will see Jesus as Messiah. See, the, the message of Joel is, is really pretty simple. I said there was a major theme earlier, but the message is very simple. It's simply this, come back. Come back. That's what he was crying out through the prophet, come back. Hey, you did the locust for one purpose, to come back. Hey, you, you walked away, you got to come back uh, captivity, but I didn't abandon you. God says, come back. And I don't know where you are today, but maybe you've walked away from the Lord or, or, or maybe you've, you've fallen or, or, or maybe you've never turned to him. But, but he's saying, come back or come to me for the first time. See, these locusts, I said they're also metaphorical. Metaphorical uh, for, in, in eschatology, right? Uh, that, that, that one day these invading armies will come like those locusts. But it's also metaphorical as a picture of sin. Because what those locusts did is exactly what sin does in our life. It, it comes in. It starts off as tiny little, little egg, little seed. But then it gives birth to something far greater. And the longer it stays in us, the more it devours. It has one goal. It has one purpose, and that is total destruction. And the insatiable appetite that, that sin has never ceases and once one is devoured, it simply moves on to the next. That's what these locusts are. They're a picture of, of the sin that we choose. I was thinking through how God used locusts. You know, God had brought a plague of locusts against Egypt in, in one of his attempts to save his people from captivity. Now, seven centuries later, here Joel tells us that once again he used locusts. But this time to wake his people up. So they would understand the, the depth and the wages of their sin. As bad as these locusts were, and they were bad, he reminds them, there's a far greater judgment coming. There's a judgment coming that's going to make these locusts look like the cicadas of Murfreesboro. They'll look like nothing in comparison. See, friends, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the wrath of God's judgment for sin. Not for his sin, for your sin, for my sin. He took that on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. The only question is, will we do it? Will we receive it or will we come back to him? 6,500 miles from where we sit today, the nation of Israel and the Hamas terrorists who, who live in the region of Palestine. Remember, Palestine is a region, not necessarily a people. Those terrorists, as well as the Israelites, they, they're warring even today over the promised land of Canaan and have since it was first promised to God's children. And while they war, and while innocent lives are being taken, still, the greatest majority have not acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. 
They've not received the Prince of Peace. And where He's not, peace is not. They've always been at war. They continue to be at war. And all the while, He wants them to open their eyes to see Christ as Messiah. But what does that mean to us? I've got to close out. I should have closed out. Here's my question. I said the major theme is the day of the Lord. We've looked at the day of the Lord, past, present, and future for the nation of Israel. What about you? Have you experienced the day of the Lord in your past, in your present, and for all of your future and all of eternity? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, I'll close out here, says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call to Him while He is near. Friends, can I tell you, He's here. He's not just near, He's here in this very moment. Verse 7, Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for He will freely forgive. God alone can forgive your sins. Final thought, these locusts, I I said they represent a lot of things. They represent sin. But they also remind us not to trust in the things of this world. See, the people had become self-sufficient. They had all the grain they could imagine. The land was flowing with milk and honey. Man, things were good. Uh, Wine, grain, all these things. Israel had it all. And so God took it away. Don't fool yourself that you're self-sufficient. Power, wealth, position, relationships, all of that can be taken away and destroyed. God says, trust only in me. 